morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you this morning. It's been another fabulous week uh, getting adjusted to uh, life in the office at CNBC. I had a number of experiences and highlights. Uh, just wanted to share a few of them with you today. Opportunity to continue to meet one on one with our staff members here and get to know them a little bit better, which has been wonderful. Uh, on Wednesday, I had the special occasion of uh, Mr. Herb Fisher coming and giving me a tour of every nook and cranny of this building. So I'll never get lost again in this building. And I'll never leave my office without my key again. Um, though I, I believe there's probably still some areas I may not have seen yet. I didn't realize there was a bomb shelter in the building. Actually, it's not really a bomb shelter. It's, I think, where they practice music. But it's, it's, it's down there. I mean, it's, it's deep in the recesses of the building. Uh, I, I found it. There, there's all kinds of fun, exciting places to find around here. I, I even told her before he left, I said, I think we could sell tickets. Uh, maybe and do this more often here uh, for folks that want tours. So, and then, hey, Wednesday night, that was phenomenal. I, I pulled in the parking lot here on Wednesday night, and it was just packed. Uh, and, and really, it was amazing to see the amount of people here and, and to see uh, there was a WANA going on, there was youth ministry going on, there was prayer meeting going on uh, right back in this room. It was, it was just really uh, outstanding to be here and to see uh, all the folks that were coming back to be a part of that on Wednesday night. Uh, very, very exciting. And then on Thursday, I uh, had the opportunity to meet with a team of folks from our church. Uh, they're called Stephen Ministers. And they actually help uh, those in the congregation or those in the community even uh, that are grieving and walking through difficult times. And, and it was just a fabulous opportunity to meet that team and, and get to interact with that team of Stephen ministers that are here uh, for us, for the congregation. And so it really was a, a great week, a, a wonderful week. And, and again, I enjoy uh, getting settled in and getting to meet uh, everybody. And, and I'm trying to remember your names. It's just... Uh, be patient with me. There's a lot, but uh, I'm trying as best I can, and, and the Lord has been good to help me with that as well. Uh, when I began in ministry, uh, it, was, it was back in, in 2004, uh, leaving college and, and starting in ministry. Uh, I was hired. My first job in ministry was as a youth pastor, and, and I remember I had spent uh, many different uh, months in training, many different years in training, and I remember I had moved into my office at Wesley Church, and, and I had uh, began setting things up, and, and I had all of these books, and, and all of these materials, and, and all of these, these different uh, items that had, you know, I had accumulated over four years of training that were to teach me how to do ministry. Uh, really, they, they, they were given to me as preparations for how to do ministry, and I remember about a month into my job, I just, <clears throat> I was hit with the immense reality uh, of what God had had called me to. And, and I started to have a little bit of a fear and a trepidation, like, man, what if, what if I ruin these kids? You know, like, my word, like, like what, if, what if they, you know, what if I really mess up? And, 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 and I was, you know, really wrestling with, am I even doing what I'm supposed to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? And I remember just feeling insecure and, and even asking the question, well, well, what in the world does a youth pastor do all day? You know, and, and just kind of wrestling with that. And and so I found in Quarryville, in the community, there was a man who had been in youth ministry for about six years. And he had children, he had a young family, he was married. And, and you know, I had the, had the thought in my mind, I need to call him up. I need to call him up. And so I got on the phone and, and I called, his name's Jim. And I called Jim up and I said, look, Jim, I said, I just started over here at Wesley Church. And man, I, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. 
and, and, and I need help, man. I need somebody to walk alongside with me, uh, of me and, and help me through this, this transition in ministry, making sure that, that I'm, I'm doing the right things, I'm, I, I, I'm saying the right things, and I'm doing a good job. And, and he said, well, come on over. Come on over to my office. That phone call sparked a friendship uh, that, that I still have today um, with an incredible man of God that, that, that has been in ministry for quite a long time, and, and he taught me quite a bit. Uh, over the years. He discipled me. He, he took me under his wing and he walked with me through the early seasons of ministry and life in ministry. And as we move towards the end of John chapter 1 today, and, and we've been studying John chapter 1 and we've been looking at it through the lens of why it was written, we're really going to hone in on the second part of that purpose for why John has written. Much of what we've studied in John chapter 1 has really dealt with the idea of believing and today we're really going to kind of move forward into um, the, the second part of that. How might we have life in his name? And one of the ways that we will discover that we can have life through the name of Jesus is through this incredible reality that as a church we're supposed to be practicing. And that is discipleship. And so today we really want to hone in and focus on discipleship. Our goal today is this. Our goal today is that we might define and observe four patterns for effective discipleship that God might use to help us and help others grow in a greater love for Him and a greater love for each other. Before we begin, would you pray with me? Father God, we come to your word this morning with anticipation, knowing that it's powerful to change us. Knowing that it's, it's powerful to change our hearts and our minds, knowing that your spirit can use it to even modify and change our behaviors as we go out into our communities that we might be a light. Lord, I pray that as we're challenged with this idea of discipleship and these patterns of discipleship that emerge from our text today, that we may be faithful to, to show others the great power and the great love of your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to be in John chapter 1 today, and we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 51, and, and we're going to break it down piece by piece. And so if you have your Bibles today and you want to turn there, you're welcome to turn there and follow along. The first pattern that emerges uh, from our text today is that God uses discipleship. He uses us to direct people to Jesus. If you have your text and you want to look at verses 35 to 37. This is John chapter 1. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say, that, said, say this and they followed Jesus. Now I think it's interesting here in verses 35 to 37 that we see this transition happening. The disciples had started with John. These were men who very early on had followed John. But the mission of John the Baptist wasn't to accumulate a lot of disciples who were going to follow him. The mission of John the Baptist was to get his disciples, his followers, his students who were loyal and faithful to him. And to have them leave him and follow Jesus. The primary purpose for John the Baptist's ministry, what he was doing, it was coming to an end. And, and he would even later mention that he must now decrease and the ministry and the mission and the person of Jesus must increase and, and elevate. 
In, in, very, in very similar ways, as Moses had brought the Israelites to the footsteps of the promised land, but he himself was not able to cross over, so had John the Baptist heralded this message of salvation, of the coming Messiah who was now here to the Jewish people. But he himself could not provide the salvation for them. Salvation was only to be found in Jesus, Messiah. And if the disciples were to grow and if, if they were to flourish, they must move on from John the Baptist and they must journey with Jesus. And so we must ask ourselves the question today as a church, if, if this is something we're to be doing, if, if we're supposed to be involved in discipleship and discipling other peoples, what does this look like? What does this look like? And I come up with this definition. It's one that's stuck with me for the past number of years, but I just really think it's effective as we consider what discipleship is. Making sure that all who claim to know Jesus are growing in Jesus and motivated to continue. And then this part is, is a little bit more difficult, but it's just as important. Being willing to ask the follow-up question, if not, why not? If not, why not? And, and really, as we define discipleship God did not call us and leave us without a purpose church he he's given us an incredible purpose an incredible call to disciple other believers people need a purpose and 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 church we need a purpose and this is the purpose that that God has left us with in the book of Proverbs it says that when a people don't have a vision they perish you know many years ago we we recognized an issue we were having at practice we, it was it was a major issue you know practice starts at 3 30 but from usually guys are on the field at 3 15 and so there was this window of unsupervised unorganized purposeless activity from 3 15 to 3 30 well guess what teenage boys do with a 15 minute window of purposeless opportunity they get in trouble and so so we, 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 we oh, for weeks and for months, oh, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Oh, the, the, what can they get? What can they do down there? They're just on the practice field. Surely they can't do anything. Well, sure enough, one day they were down there, and one of our taller boys on the team, he jumped up, and he grabbed the hold of the crossbar of the field goal post, and it came down on his head and knocked him out cold. We were in trouble. Supervised. Super, supervisionless, purposeless, kind of milling around activity. And, and, and this is what happened. This is what culminated from it. And, and you know, we can kind of, uh, as a church without purpose, we might fall into this trap from time to time. But thankfully, Jesus gives us some patterns for discipleship to help sharpen our focus, help sharpen our purpose, so that we can witness effective ways that he might use us to help others grow in their relationship with him. And in these first two verses, we find a simple yet profound pattern that's emerging that's related to discipleship. Now watch, this is, this is pretty neat, right in those two verses there. The disciples were standing with John, who was looking at Jesus, proclaiming him to be the Lamb of God, the disciples heard John's proclamation and they followed Jesus. And so in this first pattern of effective discipleship, we find this idea of taking people, directing their attention to Jesus, 
proclaiming him to be truly who he says he is, and according to his great mercy, they will hear and follow him. Right, right in those first two verses, it's, it's, it's profound, and, and it's, it's a lot, I know it's easier said than done as a church. I know discipleship is not an easy thing. It's, it's something that requires a, an investment of time, and, and this pattern might be effective by itself, but its effectiveness can be magnified by the second pattern that we find in verses 38 and 39. Let's take a look. This is verses 38 and 39 of chapter 1. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. The second pattern for effective discipleship that we find in our text today is this. Ask and listen. Ask and listen while spending time together. It's a great pattern, a a great method, a great model of discipleship that comes right out of our text this morning. This question that Jesus asks, it's a a penetrating question, and, and John, the writer, I believe he means for us to ask it to ourselves as much as he means to convey that Jesus asks it to these two earliest followers of his. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? It's a question of motivation as much as anything else. And Jesus often would ask questions revealing motivations of those who were seeking him. If you remember, there was a man in Mark chapter 10. He was a rich young ruler and he had his life put together and he had all of these great, wonderful things and he he ran up to Jesus and he said, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, fair question. But Jesus revealed through the course of the conversation that the motivation for the question was wrong. So so I wonder, did these men want to follow Jesus because they thought that they would profit to gain from it? Remember what the expectation was for the coming Messiah. The expectation was that he would be the physical king. He would be the physical king who would rule physically over the people. And and for these earliest disciples, this, this could have looked like a nice prize. To have the opportunity to, to sit and to stand and to be side by side with this new and coming king. What were their real motivations for wanting to follow Jesus? All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus would attempt to reveal to his disciples the true reality of what it meant to follow him. Did they truly know what they were in for? Had they really counted the, cro- the cost? If you remember the scribe in Matthew uh, chapter 8, this is Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. A scribe came up to him and he said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see, I think the reality that we find is that many will come seeking, but not all come seeking the real Jesus. Not not all come seeking Jesus as he's presented in the scriptures. 
Many today come seeking a Jesus that's been defined or created in the culture that they live in, a a socially, culturally acceptable, uh, palatable version of Jesus. Many will use the name of Jesus to profit their own gain, peddling a version of him that's appealing to the masses, but not truly how he is according to the scriptures. Our reality is this, church. The word of God defines the person of Jesus. And in his word, we discover that that we don't get to come to Jesus on our own terms. This wasn't an accident. These, These disciples weren't coming to Jesus on their own terms. This was something that had been part of the design of God. We we all find Jesus dead in our trespasses and sins. He actually finds us dead in our trespasses and sins. And according to his perfect timing and perfect plan for our lives. And perhaps what's most difficult for us, and, and I think perhaps what, what would be most difficult for the disciples as they followed Jesus, is that coming to Jesus means that we are going to be giving up our own lives. Following Jesus will cost us our lives. He calls us to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters, and to take up a cross for his glory. And it's a call that we are not to bear lightly, friends. But it's also a call that's not heavy or burdensome. I think sometimes we can fall into a trap where, where we just feel, oh, I got this cross to bear. This is my cross. I'm going to bear it today. You know, and, well, I got this cross. I'm going to carry it. And, and, and we feel like this burden and this weight upon us. And, and that's not how Jesus attend, intends for it to be. Uh, his word shows us differently. Jesus declared it this way, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now watch. Verses 28, 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will what? Give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And sometimes we can get wrapped up in all of these things that we need to do and the burden of discipleship and to do, 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 do all of these great and mighty things. But friends, we have to consider the account of the sheep and the goats. Right? There's, there's a testimony in, in the Gospels of the sheep and the goats. And, and what happened is one group of people, they came to Jesus. And, and when they came to Jesus, they were telling them about all of the great and mighty things that they had done for him. Look at all these things we've done for you. And what did he say? Away from me. I never knew. And then there was a second group of people that they, they didn't even realize that they had been doing them. And Jesus told them, for when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you you gave me something to drink. And they looked at Jesus and they responded, when did we do these things? 
Why did we do them? You see, the burden wasn't heavy on them. The yoke wasn't heavy on them. They were motivated by love. They were compelled by the love of Jesus that they had been shown, and these things were happening naturally. They were an overflow of their thankfulness for what Jesus had done for them in their lives. These first two disciples that Jesus meets, Andrew, and and the second disciple he's not named, but John is who scholars believe it to be because John typically does not refer to himself in the gospel. Well, truly these men had a limited understanding when they first came to Jesus of who he was, didn't they? Here in this passage, when they came to him, they were only willing to identify him as rabbi or teacher. But they would soon come to find that he was so much more. You know, I don't know if any of you share this quality that I have, um, but, but reputation rarely impresses me. You know, when, when, and may, maybe some of you can relate to that. You know, when somebody comes to me and somebody says, oh, I know this guy, he's great and he's wonderful, and, and, and I really, you know, spill all these accolades out. Uh, I, for me, and, and maybe it's a fault of mine too, just to be vulnerable, I'm not sure. I, I feel like I have to meet the person. I have to get to know the person. I have to spend time with them to get to understand the quality of their character and who they truly are before I'm willing to just buy all in on that. You know, and, and, and I believe that, that this is maybe something the disciples were hoping to do with Jesus in their text. They were, they were hoping to spend some time together with him to get to know him better. You, know, you move forward into verse 38, and the question the disciples ask is just as revealing as the question that Jesus had asked. Because the question that the disciples asked revealed their intention. They wanted to get to know Jesus more, to find out more about him, to spend time together with him. You can find out a lot about a person by visiting their home, can't you? You know, we, Jesus kind of illustrates this in, in the story of Zacchaeus. And I always think it's really interesting with Zacchaeus. Jesus visited Zacchaeus' home. And all we know about Zacchaeus and all we celebrate about him is the fact that he was a wee little man. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all we came to know. I mean, when you visit a person's home, hopefully you have bigger takeaways than the person's stature or their size. But, but in the church today, we still celebrate that he was a wee little man. Uh, that's, that's another sermon for later. But, uh, but the disciples, they were going to find out so much more about Jesus in this one evening that they spent with him. In fact, this one evening would change their lives forever. And when they asked Jesus, where are you staying? Little did they know that later in John 15, 4, what would he say? Abide in me. Stay with me always. Physically, yes, they stayed with him one night, but they had no idea what they were asking. Abide in me, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And it, one evening, one moment with Jesus can change our lives forever. And many of you in this room would amen that because it's true of your own life. One moment with Jesus can completely change the complexion of your life. All that these men had known, these disciples, the identities that they had established in their communities and their neighborhoods, the people that everyone thought that they were, the people they saw themselves to be, all their thoughts, their hopes, their dreams, their goals, all their ambitions and the desires that they had, they would be changed dramatically beginning with this first encounter 
with Jesus. And following that evening, they were convinced in their minds that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the anointed one. This second pattern of discipleship requires an investment of time. It requires an ability to listen to others, to ask questions that reveal people's intentions and motivations for their decisions and their lifestyle choices. And friends, it's important that we understand that this is not with the condemning or quarreling or argumentative attitude, but an attitude of love and thankfulness, truly desiring to see our brothers and sisters growing in Jesus. Following verses 38 and 39, after spending time with Jesus, the disciples themselves were able to become witnesses, calling others to come and see. And this leads us to a third pattern that is uncovered in our text this morning. Third pattern of effective discipleship found in our text this morning is find others to bring with you and let Jesus change them. Find others to bring with you and let Jesus change him. This is verses 40 to 42 of John chapter 1, if you want to look down with me. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we have verses 40 to 42. Andrew heard from John. He followed. He went and he found his brother Simon. He told him about Jesus, the Messiah. And then he directed him to Jesus. And when Jesus looks upon Simon Peter for the first time, he significantly changes Simon. He gives him a new name. And and he calls him Cephas. And, and this idea of, of Jesus changing Peter's name, it should, have, it should have only been great affirmation to the early followers that Jesus was truly God in the flesh. Only God gave new names to individuals in the scriptures. And he did so often, right? Abram in the Old Testament became Abraham. Sarai, was, her name was changed to Sarah. If you remember Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. Simon became Peter. Saul would become Paul. Being given a new name usually came with a purpose. And, and Simon's new name, Peter, it resonated with him in so many ways, didn't it? Little pebble, little stone, stone, rock, however you want to define it. Um, as we find throughout the testimony of Peter's life, uh, he had a tendency to be a little hard-headed, didn't he? A little stubborn. In fact, commentator John MacArthur uh, refers to Peter as, quote, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, end quote. I don't know about you. Um, maybe don't, don't, if you're a spouse, don't elbow your spouse on that one. All right, that wouldn't be good. All right, but that was Peter's reputation. That was his character. He, he kind of, his name fit him. It fit him. And, and it also revealed the purpose that God would have for him later on in his life, wouldn't it? Jesus would be the cornerstone of the church. We sang about it just a few moments ago. Wonderful. But Peter would be a building block of that. He would also be a stone that would be part of the foundation of the early church and strengthening and establishing the early church as it was being built and as it was growing. And Jesus would shape Peter into the leader who he would want him to be. 
And what God calls us and he bids us to follow him, he never leaves us as we are. He never leaves us as we are. He changes us and he shapes us into the person that he wants us to be. Into the person that he desires to use to accomplish his plans and purposes through. If, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you know this because he's changed your life in some significant way. Uh, many of you can probably share that testimony. You sit here today and, and you reflect back on when you first came to Jesus and how your life looked. And now you sit here today and you think, you're so thankful for how he's changed you and what he's done. And we should be. He's continually transforming us into the person that he desires for us to be. You know, one, one of the ways Jesus does this People, sorry, I can't move away today. I have to stay behind here because my, thing, my thing's dead. Um, he uses other people to help us change. I behave. <laughs> when I went to college, I remember an incident early on. I was having a hard time adjusting. And, and there was a, a young man in the dorm that was giving me just all kinds of difficulties. And I could not get along with this person. I felt like he was antagonistic toward me. I felt like he was always negative about me, about something about me. We just rubbed each other the wrong way. And I remember one night we were having a meeting in the dorm and, and this person was, was very aggressive towards me and, and I felt so attacked. And I remember leaving and being so frustrated and walking around the campus at night. And an older guy from the school, somebody had taken me under his wing, somebody who was discipling me. I didn't know it at the time. He was a senior, I was only a freshman. He found me on campus and he came alongside of me and he told me something so profound that has stuck with me and it will stay with me for the entirety of my life. He said this, he said, Chris, I know that you are frustrated by this individual, but he says, Jesus has placed him in your life in order that you might grow. And he said, listen to me. He said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, if you don't learn to love this person as Jesus loves this person, when you move on from this place and you go someplace else, Jesus will bring this same exact person back into your life. He'll have a different face. Probably won't be the same face. Probably won't be the same, maybe not even the same gender. But this personality will come back into your life. And Jesus will bring this person back over and over and over again until you learn how to love him. And I thought, wow. Like, I had never heard that before. And, and immediately, one of the things that it did in my mind is it revealed to me how God uses people to change us. How he, how, he's so amazing. He's so sovereign. Every interaction we have, every relationship in our life, he has there for a purpose. He intends for people in our lives to change us. And, and, and Jesus... He was aware of Peter's weaknesses. You know, he's aware of our weaknesses as well. And in spite of being aware of Peter's weaknesses, he called him anyway. And, and he does the same thing for us. And, 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 I, and I feel like, oh, it would be such a testimony if we were a church that wouldn't run and hide from our weaknesses. If we were a people that would stop running and hiding from our weaknesses, but if we became a people who would boast in them. Because, you know, the reality is if we make it look like to the outside world that we have our act together and we're all good, then they might just believe that we have no need for Jesus. 
But, but the reality is, and I think we all share in, in, in the understanding that we are weak. We are weak. And, and we should desire to be a church who says, look, we aren't par- we are, we're not perfect. And we know some areas where we could do better. And we know some areas where we fall short and we're weak, but we're so thankful that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. You know, we come together every Sunday as a body of imperfect and weak individuals whose only hope, whose only claim to fame is that Jesus has saved us. The only accolade, the only banner that we can hang from the rafters is the banner of Jesus. We have no works to be proud of apart from him and apart from his great work on our behalf. From an earthly standard, it should appear that we have nothing to boast in. But from a heavenly perspective, Jesus has secured for us everything and has made us victorious. Peter's comfort was that Jesus saw his weaknesses and called him to follow despite them. And Jesus does the same with us. You know, Paul also affirmed this in 2 Corinthians. He said this, he said, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of all of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses. Content. He's not insecure about them. He's not anxious about them. He's not trying to find some five-step plan to fix them or to make them right. He's content in his insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Strong. And the trap that we can fall into sometimes, friends, as believers, is that um, we like to believe that we have some role in, in this discipleship process of changing people. Uh, and, and it's the Lord that does that, not us. It's not according to our timelines. It's, it's not our job to change them. Uh, we, we, we can't have some cookie-cutter sanctification plan that works for everybody because that's not how God works. God deals with us as individuals because he loves us. Yes, he loves us corporately as a church, but he also loves each one of us individually and independently. We are fixers. You know, when Sheila comes to me with a problem at the home, I I like to try to fix it. I think we all, it's kind of our nature. We want to try to fix it and make it better. We, We like to fix things, to change programs, to revamp ministries, tinker with philosophies, thinking that in some way we might affect spiritual growth in the lives of others. But what we sometimes neglect is that God is always the one who brings the increase. So the glory is always his. This is what Paul said to the Corinthian church, because they were kind of arguing. The Corinthian church, they had these guys, they said, oh, we have Apollos, and he's great. This is like college students arguing over which football coach is better, you know? We got this guy, he's the best coach. We got this guy, he's, so they, who? we got Apollos, we got Paul, going back and forth. And Paul finally said to them this, he said, what then is Apollos? And what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And sometimes I think we, we, we hesitate to do discipleship because we get a little bit nervous. That maybe, maybe this person won't follow our lead. Maybe they'll reject what we have to say to them. Maybe they won't like it. I, I don't always like it. It doesn't always feel good to be told areas where we're weak. But it's Jesus' job, it's God's job to change them. And this third pattern for discipleship, bringing people to Jesus and letting him change them, reminds us that we're not in control of God's incredible journey that he has for each individual disciple. And I believe it places us in a proper relation in order to the disciple and their Lord. It humbles us. It realigns our thinking on a biblical foundation. God will change people as he desires and wills for them to change. We cannot change them. And that takes us towards the final and fourth pattern that emerges from our text today. And this is in John chapter 1. If you have your text, we're going to look down at verses 43 to 51. The fourth pattern for effective discipleship is to let Jesus reveal himself. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I love how Jesus didn't just stop with the two disciples. He moved on. The buddy system wasn't enough. Two wasn't enough. He was going to go. God had called for him to go and to find more disciples. And so he goes to this place. It's called the place of the fishery. That's how we interpret the word Bethsaida. That's what it means. And ironically enough, at the place of the fishery, he finds what? More fishers. Fishers that he's going to turn into disciples. And Philip was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. He was already convinced in his mind, so much so that he attested Jesus was the one whom both the law and the prophets had written about. All the scriptures had attested. And and Philip, now he he had a difficult task, being the optimist that he was, to convince his friend Nathaniel about this. And I see Philip being this really positive, optimistic guy, and I see Nathaniel kind of being the guy that pours water on the fire. You know, when you're selling, everybody's like, oh... You know, kind of this, you get this kind of Debbie Downer response from Nathaniel as you go into the text. And, and maybe he's protecting Philip from getting his feelings hurt, uh, for trying to, to, to have his hopes too high, maybe. But, it, but he has this, this disdain for Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And either way, his response leaves us understanding that he's less than convinced that Jesus is the guy that Philip says that he is. And again, we're reminded that trying to convince somebody really isn't our job. And instead of trying to argue with Nathaniel in order to change his mind, and sometimes when we're discipling people, this is the 
This is kind of what we want to do. We want to argue with him, try to change his mind. Instead of doing this, Philip's response is simply, come and see. Not our timing, his timing. And as you move to verse 47, Jesus approaches this careful man, Nathaniel. And in his first occasion of meeting Nathaniel, he describes him as if he has known him as a friend forever. Earlier on, John the Baptist had proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God. And now, just as boldly, Jesus would say to Nathaniel, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. It's a play on words. It's a play on Andreas Kostenberger in his commentary on John says that uh, what he is saying when he says this to Nathaniel is, look, an Israel, uh, look, Israel without a trace of Jacob left in him. Israel without a trace of Jacob left in him, end quote. And if you remember the legacy of Jacob in the eyes of his brother Esau, it was a legacy of defeat, of deceit. Jacob's name had been changed to Israel by God, and Jesus was saying that Nathanael was a true Israelite without any deceit in him. Now it occurs to me as we look at this passage that these men are not strangers to Jesus. He knows them already. He gives Peter a new name. He allows Andrew and another disciple to stay with him in his home only after meeting them one time. He knows the nature of Nathanael. He understands the professions of Andrew and Peter. This was part of God's plan for these li- the lives of these men. And Nathanael's question, how do you know me, should confirm everything we need to know about the nature of the good shepherd. John 10, verse 14 Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus would go on to convince Nathanael that he was truly who Philip said that he was. And and the words that Nathanael uses to describe Jesus are powerful. Rabbi, son of God. King of Israel, and in fact, throughout our entire text this morning, there are seven different names for Jesus. Lamb of God, Rabbi, Teacher, Messiah, Son of Joseph, Son of, son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man. As we make these observations from our text today, the question that we must ask ourselves is how should our lives look in light of these realities. And, and there's a few repetitions of words here. You know, the word seeing, beholding, seeking appears over 14 times in our text today. And I wonder if really as followers of Christ, as believers who are called to disciple, if, if our job is really to, to find others to help hear, see, speak, and follow Jesus. There's something that's been on my mind the last few weeks and the last few months in relationship to this. And and for whatever reason, it's kind of been stirring over and over again. And it's this next one up mentality. And my question for you this morning as you sit here is who are the next ones up in your life? Who are those ones that God has brought into your life that need to be discipled? Who are your two or three or 12, however many that God has given you? Who are those people in your life that that are needing to be discipled? Teens, uh, who are the 20-year-olds in your life that God has brought in to help you grow? 
20-year-olds? Who are the, the older 30 and 40-year-old men in your life that God has brought into your life to help you to grow? Older men, who are the younger men? Older women, who are the two to three younger women that God has called for you to invest in and to begin discipling, to begin directing to Jesus, to listen to them, to ask them important questions, to spend time together with them, to watch Jesus change them as he reveals himself to them. As our team comes this morning, to lead us in our final song. My challenge for you, my question for you in light of these realities is to identify these two, three, maybe four individuals in your life and to consider how God might be using you to help them grow in a greater love for him and a greater love for each other. Thank you, team.